Good morning, Redeemer. Uh, if you're new, to, if you're new, or you're visiting with us, we're going to finish up our four-week uh, series uh, on the week that changed the world, and our final sermon will come from the Book of Revelation. Um, I've entitled this sermon "A New World for the Weary," and I'll be honest: when I laid things out, um, one of the things that struck me was how the crowd, when Jesus uh, went into Jerusalem, how they laid palm branches out and how they thought that he was going to come in and save them from Rome and get rid of all the soldiers in their city. And if you know the rest of the Bible, Jesus didn't touch that. Uh, Caesar was still Caesar and Centurion still marched through Jerusalem. And so if you're a first century follower of Christ, then you would have experienced this disappointment that, that these disappointments and frustrations of expectations unmet. And, um, and I, I think if we're really honest, that makes us weary. I think if you were here last week, we talked about the beauty, the beauty of grace and being pardoned. And at some point, you kind of have to come down the mountaintop and do life in the valley. And I think if you're like me, you kind of wonder, how can I, on the one hand, be loved and cherished and given grace in the sight of the Lord, and yet there seems to be so much of this world that remains untouched. And so that tension of kind of living here uh, and being benefactors of grace and Jesus doing a new work inside of us, but still seeing so much around us that's not been changed, that I think that can drive us to a place of frustration. And so I hope to finish up in Revelation just to show you that things won't always be this way. So if you have a Bible, uh, I had Anthony read Revelation 6. I'll read Revelation 7. And just one, one other caveat. Um, I am what you would call an amillennialist. Look, I, that's a big word. All it means is that uh, you'll see it. It'll come out. If you want to argue about Revelation, let's not do it at the door, right? <laughs> Just shoot me an email and I'll be more than happy to meet with you. Uh, but it'll, I will recommend three resources to you. One is a book by, the name, by the, a man by the name of Sam Storms and it's called Thy Kingdom Come. Another resource is free sermons or free, actually free lectures. D.A. Carson did a lecture. I think it's about 20 or 21 lectures. You can find that on the Gospel Coalition. Just type D.A. Carson and type the book of Revelation and go listen for 30 hours, right? and just, you can get it. Uh, there's another book by uh, uh, G.K. Beale, Greg Beale. It's a short commentary on Revelation. So I just wanna put those before you. If you wanna see what's shaping my thought, uh, I stand in line with these men. Uh, but if you're like me, I sort of grew up and I was scared to look at this book, right? It got dragons and, and all this weird stuff. Um, they got these numbers in it, which I would make the case to you that this is apocalyptic literature. And so what we hear in regular writing and sentences, the book of Revelation gives you envisions and it gives you images. And so not every number is literal and we'll come to some of that. So that's just my little caveat. Revelation seven. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. And notice how these, look at the images they want us to get. I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth so that no wind might blow on the earth or the sea or against any tree. 
And then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun and with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the earth and the sea, saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed, 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were all sealed. And after this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and they worshiped God saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever, amen. And then one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? I said to him, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. And therefore, they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence and they shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat for the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, give us insight and wisdom. Give me clarity of thought and speaking. Protect me from error. May your people have a greater vision of what you are up to in their lives now. The things that we don't often see or can make sense of, would you give us clarity? And would you whet our appetites for all that you have in store? If you would do that, Father, we would be thankful. And today would have been uh, a blessing to us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Weariness or grief or longing. That's sort of what, what I want us to think through for a moment. But I, what I want to do is let C.S. Lewis tell us better. Um, every year or so, I, I spend a, a couple months and I'm just going to reread through C.S. Lewis. It's been something that I've been doing uh, probably since seminary. And one of his lesser known works is A Grief Observed. And so it doesn't have the imagery of Narnia. It doesn't have the wit of screw tape letters, 
It's just sad. <laughs> just to be really honest, it's sad. He's digging into grief. And if you know why, uh, it makes sense. He married a woman whom he affectionately calls H. He doesn't even say her whole name in the book, A Grief Observed. And she died of cancer. And if you know a little bit about C.S. Lewis's story, his mother also died of cancer. And so he was married and, and didn't get to stay married long. Uh, and all of a sudden she died. And he actually married her knowing that she probably wouldn't live long. And so listen to what he talks about in terms of weariness and grief. This is what he writes. And no one ever told me about the laziness of grief. I loathe even the slightest effort. Not only writing, but even reading a letter is too much work for me, even shaving. What does it matter now? For she is not here to see my cheeks. It doesn't matter if I do not shave. It doesn't matter if my cheeks are rough or smooth. I now understand why the lonely become untidy and finally dirty and then disgusting. I had been warned. I had warned myself not to reckon with worldly happiness. We were even promised suffering by our Lord Jesus Christ himself. This was a part of the Christian program. We were told that blessed are they that mourn, and I accepted that. I, I've got nothing I hadn't bargained for. Of course, it is different when the thing that happens happens to you and not to others, and in reality and not in your imagination. If I had really cared as I thought I did about the sorrows and afflictions of this world, maybe I would not be so overwhelmed when my own sorrow came. I thought I trusted the rope until it mattered to me whether the rope would bear me in my distress. And now it matters, and I find that it didn't. Now, I'm not in danger of ceasing to believe in God, as some may think. The real danger is coming to believe such dreadful things about him. The conclusion I dread is not, so there is no God at all. Rather, this is the conclusion I dread. So this is what God is really like. Deceive yourself no longer. C.S. Lewis. It's a really dark and sobering book, but it's about grief. And it's about sadness and it's about suffering and it's about pain and it's about weariness, weariness with this world and weariness with this life and weariness and just tiredness. Have you been there before? See, there's a saying you're you're you're, you're either in it right now. You, you, you you're coming out of it. Or the day awaits. I'll be honest, as a family, we're in it. My wife's dad died in a car accident when she was three, and he was the baby of nine. And the one man in her life who practically adopted her and who paid money for our wedding and who walked her down the aisle, he died this Monday. And it's, it's sobering. My dad went with me and we saw him on his deathbed. We flew up to Ohio to move him and movers. We met them in the apartment. He was relocating to Alabama and he had a heart attack hours before we got there. 
And so my dad and I drove from Ohio alone in his car, leaving him up there. We're in it and it's sad and it's hard. And I imagine that there are some of you in this room that life is just hard right now. Sickness, affliction, loneliness, just tired of the world. I think what this passage does is it, it helps us understand why life remains hard. I think it's going to show us what God is up to even when life is hard. And then it's going to show us that things will not always be this way. Why does life remain hard? It's because I know we're loved and we're justified and we're accepted in the sight of God. We are beloved but we are still in this present age of suffering. That what Jesus says, it has been appointed to you to suffer. What Paul says when he strengthened his disciples saying, through many tribulations, you must enter the kingdom of God in its fullness. What we hear in, in those words from those other men, what the book of Revelations does is it, it, it actually gives you pictures. So these other men are, are teaching and preaching what this book does for us is it, it, it shows us what we hear in words, Revelation tells us in images. Now, what I want to do is let's look at Revelation chapter six. Uh, now, I watched when the lamb opened one of the seals and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a loud thunder, come. That this imagery of the lamb, we know who the lamb is. The lamb is Christ. And we know that there is no one under heaven or earth who could open these seals, that all heaven is worried because there is this document that's locked up and they, and they can't get into it. And then comes the lamb, Jesus Christ, who is the one who can open it. And so when John is, sees this image of this seal open, you, we have to step back and say, well, well, why? Why do we need the seal opened? Here's why, because there's so much about life and reality that we don't see. And unless Jesus Christ, by his grace, opens it up, we remain in the dark. And what, what, what John is doing in this passage is he says, beloved, let me open up the seal and this seal will help you understand your reality. In other words, we might think a lot of foreign things about life and reality. But what John is saying, no, the answer is here. Let me tell you what's happening behind what your eyes can see. And it takes the lamb to show you that. And so look at look at what John does. John sees this 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 seal opened by the lamb. Before we get into what's coming out, I want to also draw your attention to uh, notice these things are given. And, and I think it's going to be really important. Look at chapter. Look at verse two of chapter six. And I looked and behold, a white horse and its rider had a bow and a crown was given. So so hold that thought right there. Go down to chapter six, verse Four, and out came another horse, bright red, its rider was permitted. So, so hear that as well. Go over to chapter 6, verse 8, and they were given authority over the fourth of the earth. So look at me here. Whatever we're about to get into, you have to understand this is not out of the scope of God. That whatever authority this one rider is going to get, it's authority given to him. 
And whatever is happening in this world, it's happening because God is behind it and somehow tied to it. Now you see why C.S. Lewis says, it's not that I'm in danger of not believing in God. What I'm in danger of is actually seeing him for who he really is. And what John is about to show us is what God is up to, right? So hold that thought. Now, what's the first thing he sees when he opens up the seal? I looked and behold a white horse and its rider had a bow and a crown was given to him and he came out conquering and to conquer. Now, first of all, this is not a literal horse. This is not a literal person. This again, this is an imagery to drive home some truth. Right. Now, I think at first glance, we might think that this is Jesus, right? Because we know Jesus is going to come on a white horse. But that's the reason our call to worship was from Revelation 19. There's another white horse and another rider on the white horse who comes later in Revelation. And notice what we know about him. The one sitting on that horse is faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name that no one knows but himself. And he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And by the name which he is called as the word of God. And so that is that Jesus. That's Jesus in Revelation 19. That is not the same guy in Revelation chapter 6. Now, this, Reve- this guy in Revelation chapter 6, it says he was given authority, right? He was given a crown, and he came out to conquer and to conquer. Now, again, it's not a person, but it's an idea. What John is saying, if you're living, you're going to watch men in power. That idea of conquer and conquering and a bow and a crown, in Scripture, it's always used for military or political might. And so what what John is saying is, I saw, I saw this rider on this white horse and he comes out and he has a crown and he has a bow. And what John is saying, get ready, beloved, you're going to be living your life in military and political conflict. You're going to see nations rise up against nations. You're going to see nations. uh, We'll get to some of that later. But that's the point. That's one of the reasons we're going to be weary it's because you're going to see nations conquering nations and fights and threats. And that's going to be your reality while you live on the earth. Notice what he says when he opened the second seal. I heard the second living creature say, come and out came another horse. He was bright red and its rider again was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. And he was given a sword. Now, don't think of again a person, think about the idea behind it. This is a disregard for human life. That's what you're going to see coming out of this second rider. The first rider, you're going to see wars and, and military conquests, and people might die on a battlefield, but this second rider, that's not it. That he's going to take peace from the earth so that people would would fight one another and slay one another, that there is going to be a blatant disregard and disrespect for the dignity of human life, and you're going to live in the midst of that, and you're going to see it. And then there's a third seal, and I heard a third living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, and it was a black horse, 
And each rider had a pair of scales in his hand, and I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius, but do not harm the oil and the wine. Well, what is a denarius, right? If, if J- John's initial hearers would have known, if you went to go to work, that was your one day's wages. You went to work and you got paid at the end of the day. And if you worked five days, you might have got your check on Friday. And it was the equivalent of working a week. Well, what is the, the, the one quart of wheat? That's what the average person would consume in one day. So make the connection that you're going to see poverty. That there are going to be people who are working and they don't have a 401k a Roth IRA, a Dave Ramsey three months saving. I see Scott laughing. A Dave Ramsey three, three months. What, what is that, right? You got folks who live in check to check that they're earning and whatever they're earning, they're having to spend on food. And don't be a person with five or six people in your household. You don't make enough. This is going to make life weary. You're going to see it. Notice he says, Do not touch the oil and the wine. Commentators are split up. On the one hand, some say, okay, that's grace, right? Okay, barley, prices of barley up and wheat is up, but oil and wine, that that there are limits to the destruction. Others say that, hey, man, this is the wealth gap. You got a a group of people down here who are barely making it. Wine and oil, that's a luxury. And so the people who can afford wine and oil when everything else is overinflated, you are flying above the fray of suffering in the world, which I think is not good because one of the ways Satan deceives people is through their wealth, which you'll get in Revelation 13, I think, right? Nonetheless, poverty, no sick days, no, no emergency fund, no life insurance, no investments, no new clothes, Then he looked at the fourth seal. Then I heard the voice of a fourth living creature say, come. And I looked and behold, a pale horse and its rider's name was death and Hades followed him. And so it makes perfect sense that if you got people over here dying in the military, if you got the disregard for human life, if you have utter poverty, then you it makes sense that this fourth this fourth horse, where are all those folks going to go? They're going to die. And the fourth horse is there to wipe them up. Come on into the grave, right? I'm, I'm, yeah, right? But notice. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth. Again, this is an instance in which I don't think it's literal. I think when you read a fourth of the earth, you're supposed to think, man, a lot of people are going to die or be dying now, notice, notice what else death in Hades has with them, that authority to kill with the sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts on the earth. And so I think what, what, what's emphasized here is not so much as military conquest. It's not poverty. It's, it's not people killing people. This is actually the earth itself turning against people. Look at the, that phrase, famine and pestilence and wild beasts. This is the, this is the created order, right? And, and I think that's what he's saying, that life is going to be hard because the earth around you will betray you as well. Then I opened up the fifth seal, 
And under it, I saw the altar of the souls who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. And they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And so what, what John sees is not just external persecution and killing. He sees persecution that is, that is laser focused towards believers because they bear witness about the Messiah, that this world around them hates them, and so this world kills them. And so when he sees this seal open, he gets a glimpse into seeing that this is not just suffering because you're in a broken world. This is suffering because you have witnessed and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, I see it. And look at verse 11. Then they were given a white robe and told to rest a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as themselves had been. In other words, what's happening there is you start to see why. Why we're still here. The why that we're still here is because God has people that don't yet know him, that he has chosen in himself before the foundations of the world, and they have not believed. And when, when those who have been martyred under the throne are crying out, Lord, how long, how long, how long, what does the Lord say? He says, not yet. I got a few more people who are going to come to faith in me, and when I get the full measure of everyone I want in my family, then, and not a millisecond sooner. You get the image? That's the fifth seal. I think the sixth seal, right there in verse 12, and notice that pause. He jumps from the sixth seal to this, this place in chapter 7, and then he picks back up with the seventh seal. I think the sixth and the seventh seals, day of judgment type stuff. This is future day of judgment. And all the other seals, one through five, there are many judgments. There are many reminders saying, if you think this world is bad, you wait till all heaven is silent when my son comes in his wrath. You wait and you look at when this sixth seal is open, how it says that every mountain is clear. That means that, that Jesus will be able to see everything in everyone from every era and no one can hide from his sight. He says, you just wait when, when the Lord comes back on his throne and, and he comes to triumph. You just wait. He says, we will want the mountains to, to fall on us before we stand before the holiness of the Lord. He says, you just wait. You're going to want to die and you cannot die because the wrath of God will not let you die and you will suffer forever. And so that's why heaven gets quiet. Heaven, look, look at chapter 8, verse 1. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. That is when heaven is like, oh my God, you are about to take out your wrath. You get it? Now, here's my question to us. These first five seals, do you think that that is in the future? Or do you think that we're in that right now? The future, or are we in it now? See, that's the difference between a post or a pre-millennialist 
we would say that the age of suffering and persecution and tribulation is not in the future. We're living in it right here, right now. Now, how do we know? The white horse rides every time you hear of nations conquering nations. You turn on the news right now and you see this conflict in the Middle East. The white horse is riding when nations want to wipe out one another. The white horse rides when you see military parades and you see presidents and you see dictators and, and military leaders pulling out their nuclear arms and parading them down the street and you see people doing that right there. It's like the white horse riding. That, that is mankind trying to flex its muscle and the Lord sits on his throne and he laughs. But the white horse rides, right? The red horse rides every time you turn on the news and you read about another murder and you read about another ethnic cleansing and you hear about abortion statistics and you hear about cops killing black men unarmed and you read about mass shootings and you hear about church shootings and you hear about home invasions where dudes will kick your door down to come in and steal your flat screen TV and maybe the $200 that you got sitting on your armoire. You gonna take my life over a TV dog? The utter disregard of human life. The red horse rides now. The black horse rides every time you and I see legislation that drives that gap between the poor and the rich that remember those scales where you're gonna have some people who barely make enough to eat and you got some people who can have wine and oil in abundance and that gap just grows and grows and grows and grows. The black horse is riding. That it rides every time you think about education and, 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 and how do we educate and give our kids a good, solid education that they can compete and exist in the world. The black horse is riding. Right? The pale horse rides. That's the horse that was given authority over famines and pestilence and wild beasts. It rides when you hear and read about these floods, the, the flooding in Louisiana where the world itself starts to kill us. Water is really good to go swim in and boat on, but not when you're coming in and flooding me out of my house. Right? Water is good when it's out there, when we're digging to get oil, but not good when it comes into Texas and Baton Rouge. It's really great, right, to have water around you when you're Puerto Rico. It's not good when it wipes out your whole infrastructure. What you're starting to see is the world itself is turning against people. The pale horse rides when you hear about another person who gets cancer. The pale horse rides when you realize that 4,500 people died because of roundworms, a worm. This is from the World Health Organization website. 
A worm killed 4,500 people last year. Flies killed 10,000 people last year. Assassin bugs killed 12,000 people last year. Freshwater snails, because they carry parasitic worms, they kill 20 to 200,000 people per year. And your dog, if he does not get shots, he will be in the company that killed 35,000 humans last year. And snakes kill 100,000 humans per year. And mosquitoes, man. <laughs> mosquitoes. The killer of killers. They kill more people than humans do. 750,000 people died through mosquito bites last year. Do not tell me the pale horse isn't riding. The fifth seal is open every time a Christian is beheaded or persecuted for their faith. You see, beloved, if we truly have eyes to see, you don't have to convince me that this is stuff in the future. I won't buy it. This is happening now. And this is why you're weary. This is why life hurts. And this is why you're scared of going to the doctor to get that cancer report. This is why we're afraid and we're weary and we're tired. It's because if you listen closely, these horses are galloping now. Rather than ask someone how you're doing, how about asking them this, where in your life is this world making you weary? Where in your life do you see the horses galloping? And here's the thing, if you can say never, because you've been cushioned by this American dream, and you've insulated yourself to this point to where you are flying above the fray and you don't hang out with commoners, I'm just letting you know that I think these are divine. These are coming from the hand of God. I permit them to run. I permit them to do this. Why? Because when you see that, that, that your life could be taken at any moment, and when you see that you can't buy yourself out of hell, then you might just wake up and say, you know what? There is one who can save me, and there is one who can not only watch after my body, but can take care of my soul. I think these many sort of narratives or judgments or what you want to call them, they're preparatory for the final one. And what God is saying, if I leave you to yourself, you will think that you're in heaven on earth, and this is not your home. And so the Lord sends these afflictions, and they're supposed to make us weary of this world. That's when you know it's doing its job, when you wake up and you're tired. Now, there's something else here in the text that I think is absolutely beautiful. We're in the present age of suffering, but what's running concurrent to this age of suffering is a present age of sealing, right? The reason I'm, I'm, I'm running these things concurrent it's because you see it in, in chapter six, right? You see these seals, these seals, these seals. He says, and after this, I saw angels standing at four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds. Let me give you a little insight on that. Wind in the Bible 
is almost always characterized as judgment. That I'll give you a, a few passages in Ezekiel. The east wind will dry up its fruit when I send it. Ezekiel 19. I will bring upon the nations, again, listen to this language, the four winds of heaven, and I will scatter them with those winds. So the, the image here is that right here you have tribulation happening on the earth. But the image here is that there are four angels at the four corners and they're holding back the winds. Well, the question is, what is the wind? The wind is the final judgment of God, the final judgment of God that will come and wipe away everything. The Bible says the angels of the Lord at the voice of the Lord are withholding that. You get it? So we're being the final judgment is, is being delayed right now. The angels are holding it. Now, something's happening here, tribulation and suffering, which I think are many judgments to make us think about this final judgment that they're holding, but they won't release until God does something with everybody here that he wants to save. You get it? Now, why are they holding final judgment? Look at what it says. Verse 2, I saw another angel rising from the sun with the seal of the living God. He has the seal. And he called out with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the earth and the sea. Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees. L look at that phrase. Until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And then I heard the number of the sealed. 144,000. So what is God up to while we are enduring tribulations here the Bible also says he is at work as well, sealing people. Now, that's going to be really important here shortly. But if you were like me, we, I grew up uh, not far from here, and we had Jehovah's Witnesses who uh, would knock on our door probably every Saturday morning. And one, I'll be honest, man, one of the, I got scared because, man, this dude pulled out, like, he pulled out a Bible and he opened it up to right here. He says, brother, you know only 144,000 people are going to get in. And you need to, you're deceived. And you need to kind of come over here. We know the truth. You want to be in the 144,000. He pulled out his Bible and pulled it. I'm like, oh, man, that's like right in the Bible. Here's a problem with that. The last I checked, you can't be united with the Father unless you believe that the Son is equal with the Father. And so not only is it heresy, right, it's just that, that, that idea is it's heretical, right? But it's also a misreading of Scripture. You see, numbers in Revelation rarely are meant to be taken literally. That what you see here is that these are all multiples of 12. That was one of my, I, I, mean, I remember when I was little, 12 times 12, 144. You couldn't tell me nothing. I knew that right there, right? <laughs> I thought I had arrived when I could remember that, right? It, it's, it doesn't take a rocket science to see that everything in here is, is, is a, a, an integral of 12. So 12,000 from the tribe of Judah, 12,000 from Reuben, on and on and on. So that, that's where that number 144,000 is coming from. It's the 12 tribes multiplied by 12. There's some discussion over why a tribe, or why a tribe is missing. We won't get into that. But here's the thing. Again, symbolism. How many disciples did Jesus have? Twelve. What happened when Judas died? Did, they, did he just roll with 11? He made one more do, right? They, they set apart, I think his name was Matthias, right? How many tribes of Israel are there? 12. So this, if you were a Jew kind of hearing this, you would know exactly what God was up to. 
This is another way of saying everyone God seals will get in and he will not lose one. You see, Jews in their culture, right? Numbers matter. They weren't just for counting. They also had another meaning to them. Trinity is, is three and, and six is considered imperfect. Seven is perfect. Twelve is completion. And, and that's what's being communicated in this text is that God will seal every one of his people and not one of those who are his will leave here unsealed. That's the image. You also know it's bad reading of Scripture because look at verse 9. How is he going to say, he said, I heard the number of the seals. And then verse 9 of chapter 7, after this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne. So here's the image. If you say it's just Israel, physical Israel, then how do you account for that? If he tells us that it was a number that I couldn't count, then why do we make this countable? Because the 12,000 or the 144,000, it's not literal. And here is the image that what God is doing on the earth in the midst of the suffering and affliction and the riding of these horses, he is imploring his angels to also do work and the work that they will be doing through the preaching of the word, through the preaching of the gospel, and believing yourself and myself to be a sinner in the sight of God, and through hearing that by faith, and believing in Jesus Christ as the Son of God, sent to ransom me from the payment of judgment, to, to, to clothe me in his righteousness, and that's why he says they're clothed in white, because their, their robes have been washed in the blood of Christ. That is how God seals people on the earth, beloved. It's not going to be a mark on your forehead. It's going to be a mark in your heart. Where you believe and you see and you turn and you're marked and you're sealed. Now, this is what's beautiful. We're secure even though everything around us shakes. You get it? You're sealed and you're secure. Even though everything around you shakes, you're secure not because you are keeping yourself secure, but because you have been sealed by the Holy Spirit. He will never leave you. He will never abandon you. He will never forsake you. And it, the suffering and hardship will come. You might lose your job and it's going to come. And your marriage might fall apart and it's going to come. And you may bury one of your kids and it's going to come. And you may get cancer and it's going to come. But the truth of Scripture is if you have believed in the, in the, in the Lord Jesus Christ, he seals you and you're safe. Amen. Now. When I was little, I had to get a lot of dental work done, I like a lot of dental work. And, and I got put under, which is, well, that's what we used to call when the anesthesiologists would do that work. We just, they, you got put under, right? And I got put under once, and I couldn't wake up. And I only remember this because I hear my mom and dad talk about it, but I guess he gave me too much. I don't know what it was, but I could not, they, they could not get me up. 
And so I hear my mom would just panic, like she's afraid, like my baby's not going to make it, my baby's not going to make it, we got to do something, we got to call the ambulance. Now guess where the dentist's office was? <laughs> On the second floor of St. Dominic's, <laughs> which is a hospital here in town. Like the ER is like right under us. What are we worried for, right? We're in the safest place to be in the world. If you have any medical complication, we're in the hospital. <laughs> Beloved, you know that that is true with you and the Lord. Trials may come, but you're in the hands of the safest one to have you. That's why great hymns like how firm a foundation. It's why we sing them. We're not just picking hymns just to say, hey, let's get our hymn check done today. No, we know some of us in this room, maybe on this day, might be struggling. And so the hymn says, how firm a foundation, you saints in the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he has said, you who unto Jesus for refuge have fled in every condition, in sickness, in health, in poverty's veil or abounding wealth, at home or abroad, on land, on the sea, as thy days may thy man, shall thy strength ever be. Fear not, I am with thee. Oh, be not dismayed, for I am thy God, and I will give thee aid. I'll strengthen and help thee and cause thee to stand, upheld by my righteous omnipotent hand. When through the deep waters I call thee to go, the rivers of woe to shall not overflow, for I will be with thee thy trouble to bless and sanctify completely in thy deepest distress. When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be thy supply. The Flame shall not hurt thee, I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. That soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to its foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. You hear that? It's acknowledging grief. And it's acknowledging sadness and it's acknowledging weariness, but it's also acknowledging your mind. And I won't leave you. I won't leave you. Now, present age of suffering, present age of God's sealing, even amidst the suffering, and his sealing is a keeping type of seal, right? But make no mistake about it, being sealed by the Lord is not the same thing as being with the Lord. The inability of tribulations of this world to remove from us the love of God is comforting. But what's even better is the complete absence of those tribulations that we got to fight through. Thus, it is possible to be here and endure suffering and to know that we're secure and still be weary. And that's why John gives us the final vision. Will it get better? And the answer is unashamedly yes. 
the second installment of your salvation, Christian, is coming. It's coming. You see, Jesus came in, in Matthew and in the Gospels, and he ignored Pilate. He ignored Caesar. He ignored all everything that was going on around his people. He took care of the reconciliation that needed to be taken care of first, and that is reconciling me and my sinning self to a holy, righteous God. He did that, but make no mistake about it, that is not the totality of his salvation. He also wants to take salvation horizontally, where it's not just me and my creator, it's me and the created world around me. And what we see in the book of Revelation is that is a second installment. The final installment comes when our king who has died on the cross for us returns in glory. He's going to come to judge, but he's also going to come and bring us the new heavens and the new earth. And that's what you see. I love C.S. Lewis. He says, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. He says, I must keep alive in myself this desire for my true country, which I shall not find after death. I must never let it get snowed under by the cares of the world or turned aside. I must make it and keep it my main object in life to press on to that other country and to help others do the same. Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis. Scripture calls this new world, the new heavens, and the new earth. And John gets a glimpse he sees that, 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 that the, the, the season of, of, of suffering and sealing is temporary. It feels like forever. That I know when you're in the pit, it feels like the sun won't rise and it feels like you're here forever. And John says, no, there is a shelf life on your suffering. There is a shelf life to your grief. There is an expiration date for this world and the way things function in this world right now. And that's why John says, I saw a picture. I saw a picture of people clothed in white robes. They, they, they have been washed by the blood of Christ. They had come to know Christ and they made it out of the tribulation. And notice what they say in verse 12, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever and ever. You got to understand him putting that against the temporary nature of what we endure in this life. The time of sealing is short. The affliction, that's why Paul could say these light and momentary afflictions of this world, they do not compare with what's going to be ours later. This later is going to be better because it's forever. This later is going to be better. Because Jesus will be here. I love what they say. They are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more. Neither shall they thirst any more. And the sun shall not strike them 
for the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. The reason the new heavens and the new earth are so beautiful, it's because Jesus will be there with us. And we will see him. And he will undo all the hurts that we feel in this life. You see, I think what John is doing here, beloved, track with me right here. When he gave us all those other horses, he gave us that, that, that rider on the white horse who came to conquer and to conquer as a picture of world governments and, and kings. Notice what he says. Therefore, we shall be before his throne. Look at the imagery. Right now, we're worried, right? Right now, we are in a place where we don't know what's going to happen in the world because of, of, of rulers and leaders in high places. And what John is saying, there is coming a day when the real king will be on the throne and you won't have to worry about dictators and, and just, you, you, that, that's going to be yesterday. Notice what he says. Remember the, 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 the next horse, the red horse? who comes to kill, notice what he says, and he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. In other words, his presence will shelter his people and no harm can come your way. Nothing can get there because the, th the, the lamb will shelter you himself. Remember the other, the, uh, the other rider that went the, of poverty where people couldn't get, get wheat and barley? Notice what he says in verse 16, and they shall hunger no more neither thirst anymore. You get the image, beloved, that we're not going to have to worry about food. We're not going to worry about inflation in the new heavens and the new earth. All that we need will be provided for us because the lamb will see to it. Look at the next one. And the sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat. Why would he bring up the sun? Because that rider death who had authority to harm the earth with famine and pestilence and wild beasts, what he's saying here now in the new heavens and the new earth, he can't ride. He can't ride no more. The world's not going to turn its back on you and betray you. Creation will not harm you anymore in the new heavens and the new earth. You see it, beloved? It's forever. Now, can you hear your king coming? Can you hear him? By faith in this word, can you take what John has done to explain our present reality and he nails it? Can you extend that grace where you can say, brother, if you can tell me about what I'm going on right near, right over here, then the Lord by the spirit has given you revelation of what life's going to be like over here. And the command or the admonition from this passage is to see it. See it by faith. Your king, he comes and he will put all the writers down. And he brings his new world and new creation with him. And it will be ours, beloved. And it is beautiful. He will give rest to the weary. And he will bring in the new world for those who are weary and waiting on him. I'm going to close with this. I know we kind of we need to get out of here. Um, I say this to the person who doesn't know Jesus. I think every time you see tragedy in our life, 
Every time you hear about cancer and affliction of the body, hear the words of Jesus. Fear not the one who can harm the body. Fear the one who can harm the body and cast our soul into hell. That's who you should fear. And so I think, beloved, when we're in this world and we see crime and all these other ills and the loss of life, I think the Lord would have us to think there. The final judgment. That in the book Pilgrim's Progress, Pilgrim, when he leaves to try to get his burden relieved, he's like, man, I'm not fit to even go to jail here. How do I think I'm fit to bear the bars of hell forever? Beloved, I would implore you, the mark of the beast, it is not a literal 666. The mark of the beast is unbelief. That's how you know you've been marked. And you have a God who wants to seal you as his own through the gospel. Turn to him. Let's pray. Father, we love you and pray your blessings upon our time. I pray for those who are grieving right now. May we grieve with hope. I pray for those who don't know you. Might today be a day where we rest in your wonderful love. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.